This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we look at a new movie in cinemas or on streaming services and compare it to films from the past, from the same filmmaker or pictures in the same genre or starring a particular actor. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I have a film blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook. I'm a multimedia journalist with the Saltwire Network and the Chronicle Herald. On this episode, the 144th episode of LMYE, Stephen and I were looking at the varied work of American philosophical humanist filmmaker Richard Linkletter, who has a new movie on Netflix, Apollo Ten and a Half, A Space Age Childhood. Hi, Karsten. Good morning. It's good to see you again. And of course, it may not be morning when you're listening to this show, but... Uh, we recorded <laughs> on a Sunday morning. We're, we're, it's a Sunday morning here in the studio at CKDU. All is quiet. It's Easter Sunday. Dating this show even more than I was with that timestamp. But uh, we've had a pretty good week of watching the films of Richard Linklater uh, connected to his brand new film, Apollo Ten and a Half: A Space Age Odyssey. And... Um, Space Age childhood. childhood. Yeah. I know. I, as soon as I said it, I knew I had it wrong because the the uh, I, here's here's a little uh, peek behind the curtain. The uh, the IMDb tab in my F- Firefox browser is, is truncated, and uh, there we go. It's yeah, it's, it's not a, a title that rolls off the tongue. No, it is not. Um, but then you know, Linkletter is not someone who does some who does things normally. I mean, he he's probably, he's sort of a restless, unassuming auteur. He's probably best known for movies like Dazed and Confused and School of Rock. And then, of course, his Oscar-nominated uh, Boyhood, the 12-year film project. But, uh, you know, as a result, we're not going to really talk about those movies today. No. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I mean, it was fun delving into his filmography and some of the, the corners of, of, of things that uh, we may have overlooked. I, I certainly got to see a number of films that I did not get to see when they were new uh, and caught up with a couple of uh, films that I greatly enjoyed at the time that I saw them. And, and uh, it's, it's been a fun journey to, to, to look at uh, sort of more of the entirety of his filmography. Uh, always an interesting filmmaker. Uh, I've seen some interviews with him. Seems like a lovely guy who just loves film and, and classic film. There's some interviews with him on, uh, on the Criterion channel where he talks about his love of, of foreign films, French films especially. He's a big fan of... Uh, uh, Robert Bresson, um, you know, who was, a, you know, didn't like to use actors and had told these very kind of human, very real kind of almost documentary type stories. And you, you get a sense of that from some of the, the Linkletter films. Uh, and, uh, you know, really, really dedicated to working around his home in Texas a lot of the time or as much as he possibly can depending on the story that he's working on and and also a deeply personal filmmaker you know even you know even something like boyhood uh, and and the film we're about to talk about Apollo 10 and a half um, you know directly drawn from details in his own life and um, and you know he's, he always puts an interesting spin uh, on the characters and on the on the storytelling oh yeah for sure he's got uh, he's very down to earth very relatable. Uh, he's, you know, he's very philosophical. Some of his, his, uh, his films are very heady, but, uh, he's also a sports fan, particularly baseball. So that comes <laughs> out in his movies and he likes, he's, he's interested in NASA and space clearly as per his new film. But, uh, there are other movies we didn't even get to, which we'll have to, you know, add to the list, the remake of Bad News Bears or a film called Tape 
which uh, which I gather, I think I might have seen it back in the day. I think it takes place all in a in a motel room uh, or suburbia. Yeah, I think is, it's based on a play. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but we did see, as you say, we saw a lot of great films. Let's start talking about Apollo Ten and a Half, a space space age childhood, which kind of dropped out of nowhere. Like I didn't even know this was coming. But this is not unusual for Richard Linklater. I, I mean, he makes his films, many of them, on a fairly low budget, and maybe there's not a lot of money left over for for you know. Uh, marketing but you'd think if he teamed up with netflix there might be we might have known about this in advance but uh, i certainly didn't well of course the thing with netflix films is you, you don't get hammered with trailers in the theater um in a big way and and even you know even when they show up on youtube or whatever there doesn't seem to be a lot of push behind them and it's, it's some remarkable films they show up you're aware of them for maybe a week and then they just get shoved further down the queue and that's that's kind of unfortunate um but uh, you know the, on the plus side they're readily available if you know about them you just they're just a button click away mm-hmm. but uh you have to know about them first yeah yeah so this is one it is animated but it's i think largely rotoscoped which is a a, a you know way of animation that he's done before with films like waking life and uh and a scanner darkly where he you know shot i guess on video digital video originally and then animated over it uh and i'm probably oversimplifying the process but but certainly that's the vibe that you get and this is a an animated tour of Linkletter's childhood in the suburbs of Houston, Texas. And this delightfully warm film. It's a late 1960s, a time when everyone's family in this town is somehow employed by directly or indirectly the space program at NASA, which filters down into the lives and imaginations of these families' youngest members. It's told from the perspective of a boy, Stan, played well, voiced by Milo Coy who um, is kind of Linkletter's eight-year-old avatar. Uh, and it's all about his life. It's about the movies he watches, the the fun he has, the candy he eats, his mostly benign misbehavior with friends, and adventures with five siblings. Uh, we get the records his, list, his sisters listen to, the shows they watch, their visits to the local bowling alley and arcade, time spent on a baseball diamond in the local amusement park, um, and all sort of narrated by older Stan, played a voice by Jack Black in a sort of familiar Wonder Years style. It's a it's an unadulterated nostalgia trip, uh, but a, an entirely personal one. And I, I I it kind of made me think of what um, Kenneth Branagh did with Belfast. It's you know it's it's that kind of a story, uh, trying to capture a time and place in a way that that felt is felt re- it feels really welcoming to me. I I'm I really enjoyed it though. There's not much of a plot, which of course is not also not unusual for Linklater. No, uh, and going back to the his very sort of start, not his not his first feature, but his first kind of commercially released feature, Slacker, which we'll talk about shortly. You know, did not have a plot at all, but it was a, a series of scenes kind of that that interlink rather cleverly as that moves from one character to the next, uh, and uh, and it's interesting how he can just you know ditch narrative entirely in in favor of kind of mood and atmosphere and and character and uh, just interesting ideas uh and and this film is is certainly more of a story i guess in terms of that it's all from one kid's point of view than than slacker and 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 waking life which we'll also talk about his first kind of animated over live action uh feature but uh, but it's it really is a, a time capsule that uh you know pushed a lot of my buttons because i was you know i was born in 1967 i i'm 
was told that I, you know, watched some of the moon landing, the original one when I was like two or three or whatever it was. But, but, um, but I do remember some of the later moon missions, uh, and watching televised footage of, you know, of some of the, the, the final ones and just being captivated. And I had books on Apollo missions and, you know, I had a rec, <laughs> I had a record that was like the history of space exploration going back to like Copernicus and Galileo and taking you up, up to like the launch of the Apollo 11. And I, I had that thing memorized, you know, at one point I had the whole, and so I still can do like the Apollo uh, 11 countdown um, by heart. And then, and in fact, was doing it during this movie, you know, which probably annoyed uh, Jordana to no end. <laughs> what is wrong? With you? Why do you store these things in your brain <laughs> for so long? But but uh, the, the the you know the the NASA space age you know uh, was was just a fascinating part of my childhood, and then of course getting to Cape Canaveral as a kid in the late seventies, and actually like you know standing on the launch pad and visiting you know where they brought the rocket out of the giant hangar that was like the largest man-made building in the world at that point and that all that kind of stuff so i i have a real connection to the material in this uh in this film and uh, you know and certainly the tying all the space age stuff to all the childhood stuff you know the the candy bars and the theme parks and the music oh man the music is uh uh just one sort of endorphin jolt after another for me. Yeah, I can understand that. I My childhood was a little different than yours, Stephen, but I absolutely related to a lot of this, too. And and it's funny, because the way the film is sort of the, in the trailer, it's a, they're, they're setting it up as a fantasy of a boy who gets a chance to go to the moon when NASA builds a module slightly too small for the regular astronauts. <laughs> but that is all smoke and mirrors. I mean, it's kind of a dream that Stan has while he and his family experienced the Apollo 11 mission through their television. And it's touched upon time and again, but that's not really what this is about. That's kind of a, a whole separate little little sort of uh, fantasy uh, uh, sidebar. And while I guess I could understand someone feeling like, hey, this isn't what the trailer made it seem to be like, it's so broadly appealing that I think it would be churlish for anyone to criticize a lack of overarching structure. I mean, what we're getting here from Linkletter and his collaborators, it's so welcoming. It's I think it actually offers more depth and enjoyment than that sort of goofy cover plot could ever do. <laughs> um, and, you know, one thing I learned about uh, this, well, about Linkletter and his collaborators while I was looking into his career is that Jack Black, who has been in a number of, of Linkletter's films, uh, his parents were satellite engineers. His mother worked on the Apollo lunar module guidance system, uh, even though he lived in California, uh, not or they live in California, not in uh, Texas. So I kind of understand why they connected, right? Because it oh, sounds wow. like their childhoods were very similar in terms of this influence of this this optimism and technology. Wow, I didn't know that detail because I mean, you know, as as we'll see in Bernie and as we've seen in School of Rock, which we're not talking about today, um, they do have a real uh, simpatico relationship, and and I, you know, he gets work from Jack Black that uh, you don't see in any other of his films that that you know he really knows what he's capable of and what he can deliver. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about Slacker. Let's go back yeah. to the beginning. Uh, it's from 1991. It's on the Criterion channel and uh, it's uh, it's funny to see it after so many years. I watched it in cinemas when it first came out, but it, I hadn't seen it since then. It's, and, the, you know, it's there's a conspiracy guy walking around Austin talking to people about <laughs> the fact that we've been on the moon since the 50s and Mars since 1962. So so clearly the fantasy space program has been part of Linkletter's sort of 
voice as a filmmaker for a long time. This is this is a summary movie of people, mostly in a, a single day, or at least it seems that way, wandering around Austin, uh, including the filmmaker himself, discussing a dream that he has, a dream life, to his cabbie. Uh, and given that this is the start of his film career, it's a great mission statement, especially you also consider he made Waking Life. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he uh, you know, uh, you mentioned the, the interviews that are on the Criterion channel with Linkletter right now. He talks about wanting to make films about what's in front of him in real life. But in some ways... You know, that's accurate, but it's not accurate. Sure, he has a lot of slice of life stories, but he's also got, you know, he also does science fiction and he does wildly philosophical, you know, almost experimental films. And I just, this is this is a, a film where there is no one single character. You just move from character to character around the day as they connect, as they pass each other on the street or have have a, a chat and, a, you know, they're friends and all of a sudden we we'll follow a different character. And it's it's kind of like one of those things where, where you sort of think, wow, th- no one's done this before, but I remember... Uh, watching it and thinking, you know, this is the first real Gen X film I could think of. It just felt like it captured a real zeitgeist at the time, and and uh, and I was I was so impressed with the uh, the experimentalism, the adventure of the film. Uh, I think it still works for what it is. It is it is something. It is unlike anything I've seen before or since. I mean, with the exception of some of other of Linklater's oh, yeah. films. Yeah, this this was kind of like a grenade going off and launching the kind of the the indie cinema wave of the 1990s, and this is this is pretty much ground zero. I I, I don't have the dates in my head, but I, I know that it was you know just kind of predates ever so slightly uh, Sex Lies and Videotape by Linklater's friend uh, Steven Soderbergh, who shows up in Waking Life, oddly enough, an animated version of him. Uh, and and you know it, it seems like those two, the, this film and and that film kind of really kicked off the kind of the the Sundance South by Southwest kind of film movement that uh, kind of defined where uh, independent cinema was going in the, in that decade. And, um, you know, as, especially as the kind of the studio system continued to further crumble into franchises and superhero titles. So, uh, you know, and eventually those guys would work within the system and then and many filmmakers like them, but uh, you know, this definitely has that let's get our friends together and make a movie kind of feel about it uh which is why i like it and why i kind of think you know could a film like this get sort of greenlit today <laughs> like would would anybody look at a script for a film like this and, or 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 even if you know because i'm sure large parts of it were were scripted and some large parts of it were improvised and and to to make that kind of loose improvisational feeling kind of movie i i feel like it'd be really hard to make something like this today you know unless you just you know go out with a bunch of friends and do it on your iPhone and, and hope hope it turns out. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe Sean Baker has done that to some degree with a movie like Tangerine, but mm. but you're right, it, even that has a much more central plot to follow where this just doesn't. Yeah, it's but it's it's great to just to have some of these ideas put out there and to think about uh, these these different elements of of the filmmaker's life as they're assembled. I mean, he says like the the the, the person who just the roommate who vanishes and just leaves a series of cryptic postcards. You know that really happened. So it's it's this great little snapshot of of, of a place and time and uh, and and kind of a brain scan of what the director was was living through at the moment, uh, especially in that place in that in Austin, Texas, which. You know, it wasn't necessarily the cultural hotspot that it's uh, since become uh, in the last uh, few decades. Yeah, absolutely. And 
I did really I, I like that that it's it's not that it's not about it anything. I mean, you'd be mistaken to think because it has no plot, it's it doesn't have things to say. Like there's really interesting characters. There's a lot of hustle going on. There's a lot of commentary on celebrity and business and you know America and politics. Uh, one of the characters says terrorism is the surgical strike capability of the oppressed, and I mean that is that is some you know intense thing to hear in in what is otherwise this kind of like weird, you know. Uh, unfocused or seemingly unfocused uh film um yeah so uh it is um it it is still quite amazing to watch and uh i was really glad to revisit it as i was glad to revisit waking life from 2001 this was the the you know the uh not 10 years into his career uh, as a feature filmmaker, more than 10 years into his career, this is now available to be watched on Disney+. And uh, Waking Life, I confess, I, <laughs> as soon as I heard that, I thought about the Moon Knight uh, uh, Disney Plus series <laughs> and uh, Chris Hewitt on the Empire yes. podcast going, the difference between Waking Life, life and Dreams. <laughs> Uh, a shout out to the Empire Podcast Film Podcast, which is uh, which is awesome, and they've been making fun of that for a while. But uh, but yeah, this, I feel like, yeah, this is, this is definitely where that all began. <laughs> um, but yeah, this Waking Life seems strangely like a spiritual sequel to Slacker, where where philosophically speaking, it's again not big on plot. It's it was his first rotoscoped animation, and maybe the first one I'd ever seen. Uh, where it's it's the film is shot first and then animated over. It's very woozily animated. Everything's moving all the time, both people and inanimate objects. There's a very cartoony nature to it. But uh, you know, it, it is about philosophy. It's about dream versus waking uh, experience, and it's about how they overlap. Uh, it's a collection of discussions around philosophical approaches to life, discussions of dreams, including lucid dreams. We get we get the return of Jesse and Celine from the before movies, which we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, they they seem a bit older. They're in bed, which, of course, they never were in bed in that first film. So there's that interesting discussion of, of cinema. There's also characters talking from a place of anger, from violence. Um, and, and there's characters who say, uh, I really enjoyed the, the, the four men walking around. And and watch and then coming upon a guy climbing on a flat, on a on a like an electrical pole and the guy on the pole doesn't know what he's doing and he's he and and one guy says he's all action and no theory we're all theory and no action <laughs> uh, yeah and and you mentioned how much he likes uh, Linkletter likes French film there's a lot of accordion music in this yes film. it's very tango heavy yeah which made me you know give it a, a sort of French cinema vibe um, though I did I will confess I wasn't. I can't say I was an entirely present for the whole movie. I found myself spacing out in between segments, uh, and I found the constant movement of the imagery was occasionally dizzying, which I don't remember from the first time I saw this this film. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it, it interesting to watch Slacker and then Waking Life back to back. Oh yeah, especially because it you know it, it starts pretty much the same as Slacker. You got a, a guy. Uh, I guess getting off a train in this case uh, rather than a bus. He gets in a car and who's in the back seat but Richard Linklater who's in the back seat of a car at the start of Slacker and they're driving around in this boat car. Um, 
<laughs> driving around Austin. And the driver of the boat car would go on to play the dad in uh, Apollo 10 and a half. So there you go. Um, there's another weird uh, connection. But I, I really enjoyed it. I did, my mind did kind of wander through it. I mean, you know, it is very kind of dreamlike. And the images, I, you know, at times they remind me of like a moving Gauguin painting. Uh, and I think that uh, different segments were probably handled by different animators. And so the, the, the style shifts ever so slightly from scene to scene, and you can kind of sense the hands of different people behind different segments. Uh, I mean, there's no way one person could have done all of this all at once uh, for, for a release. So, uh, and, uh, but I do like the fact that the, the, the visual style of it shifts ever so slightly from, from one scene to another. And, and some, of the, some of the deep thoughts are, are really worth contemplating, and some of them are, are fairly nut bar, uh, and, and gave me bad memories of you know, FIP foundation year program seminars at King's. Uh, it was maybe a flashback I wasn't hoping for. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's nice to, to fire off some of those uh, philosophical synapses and think about, you know, reincarnation. Like if reincarnation is a thing, you know, wh- where do all the extra souls come from? Because uh-huh. there's so many people on the planet now compared to, you know, uh, centuries ago. So, you know, where, you know, what happens to, other duplicate souls roaming around. I think they go into. And, I think they go into plants and animals. Myself. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, and uh, um, you know, the, it's one of Ebert's great movies. Uh, it's on his great movie list. Uh, so there's one we can check off of that <laughs> list as well. And uh, you know, the, the one sour note is a segment featuring Alex Jones uh, driving around in a car with loudspeakers on top, which is another nod to Slacker because there's a character doing the same thing in that film, and uh, that moment left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. I guess maybe he wasn't as much of a right-wing demagogue at the time that this film was made as he's become, but uh, you can sort of see where he's going based on that one particular scene. Uh, but but overall, it was uh, certainly an enjoyable experience and, and one I was uh, happy to revisit. Okay, on this segment of Lends Me Your Ears, we're talking about Three films by Richard Linkletter that are based on true stories. Uh, Two of them are sort of crime stories. Now, I'm going to argue that Linkletter isn't at his best as a genre filmmaker. Uh, I don't know if this is a controversial take or not, but but just based on on some of the films, I haven't seen all of his films, but uh, the ones that, that lean into genre. Um, uh, but aren't my favorites. But uh, so let's talk about Newton Boys from 1998. It's available to be watched on Disney Plus, uh, and I feel like this is the film that proves my point. It's it tells the true story of the Newton brothers, who from 1919 through 1925 were wildly successful bank robbers. Uh, it feels a little bit like one of those last tales of the old West, heavy on the fiddle music and people wearing <laughs> suspenders. Um, and what it gets really right is a sense of brotherhood between the the four brothers, the four lead characters. Matthew McConaughey is the ostensible leader of this gang. He's already gone to jail for something he didn't do, so he has a gripe against the system. But he gets his younger brothers, played by Ethan Hawke and Skeet Ulrich, in on the action in their game for they're basically cowboys um and dwight yoakam plays an associate the explosive experts uh, the wonderfully named brentwood glasscock uh <laughs> and then um uh yeah and then we also get uh, julianne margulies as a love interest for mcconaughey's character though she doesn't really have much of a subplot i mean it's just kind of something that's going on in the background uh and then the great uh, chloe webb is who i'll always think about as nancy 
Nancy Spungen. Spungen, yeah. She's also in this. Um, and then the eldest brother busts out of prison. He's played by Vincent D'Onofrio. He's an actor that can really deliver a sense of danger if you're you're really never sure what he's going to do. And, and he's he's got a physicality. He's large. He's a large man. I mean, obviously, most recently, he's been playing the Kingpin in the Daredevil series, and he showed up in another recent Marvel series. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's definitely leaning into that part of his character, and it's great to see him here. But I think what, I'm ar- what I'd argue is that the film is missing that sense of danger throughout and that stakes. And these guys never really seem like they're, I mean, at one point, obviously they are in danger. People are shooting at them. But it's not like the Wild Bunch or Once Upon a Time in America, which this picture resembles slightly those movies, uh, where you can really feel the dread coming on. The life of crime, you know, comes with consequences. Uh, most, you know, crime dramas are thrillers because thrillers thrill, whereas I don't think this is a thriller. I think this is just a story of brothers, you know, making their way. Yeah. <laughs> the only way they know how. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> um, anyway. Without what any real hazards yes without any real hazards what did you make of uh the newton boys i enjoyed the film on on some kind of base entertainment level uh but it's it's not one of his more distinguished projects despite the amount of money that was obviously poured into it to recreate this period and to hire that pretty amazing cast Mm -hmm. Uh, the cast is great yeah uh and i certainly don't regret the two hours plus that i spent with it although it doesn't need to be you know, over two hours, which it is, uh, given that, uh, you know, they just sort of continue to rob bank after bank and, and without seemingly uh, facing any consequences until they get a little too big for their britches with a train heist. Uh, and uh, and that's when things really start to go south for them. But, um, uh, yeah, it, it felt fairly, fairly insubstantial. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, again, like, uh, I enjoy the performances. Uh it had a it had that whiff of the sting about it, and of course McConaughey's resemblance to Paul Newman maybe reinforces that is the kind of effortless charm mm-hmm. with which he kind of uh, you know was able to talk people into to doing things. And That's a connection I had never thought of before, but you're absolutely right. He does have a Paul Newman esque quality to him. Well, they they certainly play it up here, uh, you know, as the 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 charming gangster, and 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 it's great to have to see Ethan Hawke have so much fun with a role. You know, yeah. You know, yeah. We, I mean, Ethan Hawke is certainly, uh, you know, this is hard to believe this is 20 years ago. Uh, he's done some amazing work recently. Yeah. You think 25 of, years. Tw- oh, <laughs> Almost, that's yeah. right. Yeah. It was 1998. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, know, you think of something like first reformed, which is a, this lacerating, blistering soul searing performance, but then just to see him, hoop and holler and have ride a horse and have fun <laughs> it's also something that hey he's really good at that and you know forget how you know effortlessly charming he has been and and is in the in the sunrise movies or the before series uh so it's it's uh, but it's all fairly surfacey it's it's all uh fairly uh trivial and nothing we haven't really seen before in so many ways it's, it's just watching uh, a bunch of actors that we really like kind of you know, go through these uh, these kind of old timey nineteen thirties Model T road, roadster kind of uh, bank robbery hijinks that uh, that aren't really uh, really fresh or or new. They weren't in nineteen ninety eight, let alone uh, you know all these years later. Although I did enjoy their trip to Canada, just <laughs> you know, and, and they 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 go to pull off some some heists in Ottawa and Toronto and. Uh, and, and that's one of the most fun moments in the film, especially in Toronto, where they get this uh, great idea to rob a bunch of 
bank couriers in broad daylight. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't uh, doesn't go as planned. Let's leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that too. I, I would say that I, I was reminded, and you brought up Roger Ebert earlier, and he's obviously for both of us a touchstone for uh, a lot of uh, the kind of critical thought that we have around films. But uh, I think I'm paraphrasing now, but I think he said, you know, sometimes he asks himself, would this be more, in- is this film more interesting than watching the actors getting together and having lunch? And sometimes, you know, if a if a film is particularly well cast and exciting because of that cast, but doesn't entirely work, I think of that. And I think, well, you know, watching, spending two hours watching these, these this cast have lunch actually might be more interesting <laughs> than the film. Um, but, you know, that's that's not to say that there aren't things to enjoy about it. No. Uh, you know, and, and we are certainly fans of Linkletter, and, and I appreciate that he occasionally does take the path more trod. Like, he will go for more conventional filmmaking and and have fun with it. And, you know, there is there are things to enjoy here. Um, and I yeah. can see why McConaughey wants to do it because I guess the Newton boys were actually from his hometown so I guess it's one of those local legends that he grew up you know hearing his whole life and couldn't wait to to get it on the screen and you know I, I guess it's a fairly faithful presentation of, of what they did but uh, yeah, certainly not a not a remarkable film in the catalog of, of, of Linklater titles. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think, um, uh, you know, what's fun to watch is at the end, over the end credits, there's documentary footage of the actual boys talking, like, on The Tonight Show and being interviewed, and that's really fun. I, I really enjoyed that part of it. Uh, there's there's probably a great documentary about them, you know, out there somewhere, or maybe there could be one made yet. So, um, But let's move on to another crime drama, ostensibly a crime drama, Bernie from 2012. It's available on Amazon Prime. It's set in Carthage, Texas. It's based on a true story again, uh, written by Linkletter, based on an article by Skip Hollinsworth, and it's about an affable mortician, uh, though, you know, funeral director, I guess, is what he prefers. Um, Bernie Titi, or Tita, uh, played by Jack Black, and it's got a little bit of what I consider a Coen Brothers hallmark, the kooky tale of small-town America where everyone's a little bit uh, odd. Uh, and then before long, there's murder. Uh, and it starts with testimonials to camera from local folks in the town talking about what a great guy Bernie is and how much he was good at his job and how awesome he is with the little old ladies and he has a terrific singing voice in church, and which, of course, we all know Black, Jack Black has a great voice. Yes. Uh, and then we're introduced to Marjorie Nugent, played by Shirley MacLaine. And she's the opposite of Bernie, according to the townsfolk. She is a B-I-T-C-H is what she is. Uh, and, of course, nobody does curmudgeonly like Shirley MacLaine. No. She's so incredibly unpleasant. But Bernie and Marjorie hit it off. And before long, they're spending all their time together, traveling together. And he's her companion. And her name is on her checks. And her his name is in her will. And... He becomes her business manager and everything, but uh, yeah, then things kind of start to go wrong between them, and I think that's all I'll say about the plot. Um, You know, it's funny how, again, structurally, we don't actually spend that much time with Bernie and Marjorie. The story is told mostly by the townsfolk. And that's so odd, eh? We have a lot of assumptions about them and their relationship, but I'm not convinced we get the whole story of what they're really about because we're seeing it. This is a story told through the eyes of the bystanders, and it's about them and about how they react to what they know about what they think they know about these characters. And uh, that uh, that's what I found so interesting about Bernie was it really – it isn't so much about – 
at Bernie, but about all the people around him. Yeah, it really is about the impact a, a story like this has on a community. And I, I just love that the, they basically, I think, interviewed people in East Carthage or in um, East Carthage or just Carthage, East Texas, about uh, the real life people that, uh, that the story is about. And then interpolated their reactions with the fictional drama uh, as played by uh, Jack Black and Shirley MacLaine, who is terrific here. I love me some Shirley MacLaine and I love all the stuff they say about uh, her character. Like, uh, you know, the, the Marjorie's nose was so high she'd drown in a rainstorm <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and stuff like that. Like, you know, she just plays that uh, kind of Scroogey character who, you know, ever so briefly lightens up and, uh, you know, re-enters the world as it were thanks to bernie until her true nature kind of reasserts itself but uh you know th that uh that that fine line it walks between comedy and, and and tragedy is is really well handled and, and jack black is a great performance he you know it, it could threaten to tilt into kind of parody or satire or whatever but but he stays on the, the pretty straight and narrow with a really wonderful characterization yeah he's great in this it's one of his best performances for sure um and i i did appreciate that what Linklater i think was trying to do in in creating this story um and is being is is he doesn't really dip into i mean we're talking about genre but it, it feels like he's not demonizing he just He's kind of trying to just tell the story of what might have happened, and um, and he's not. Uh, he, yeah, he's there's a. Um, I get, it, it makes almost seem like an everyday thing. The, there is a murder in it, but the violence there's violence, but it's not really communicated with a lot of intensity. Uh, it's not like he's endorsing it, but he's not demonizing it either. It's just like he's almost saying this is what can happen in in people's lives and and this is what is the reaction to it and this is how it all worked out now i have i have also read i don't know if this is true but i've read that the the real bernie um has been had been released uh from prison at some point uh and uh, and and actually stayed in an apartment owned by um by the filmmaker by richard yeah, in his garage in his garage or something, or something like while he was the trying to get his, the fonzie apartment his his uh his yeah, that's right get his um his affairs in order and that's uh that's something so clearly he's connected to to this story in in a substantial way it's not just making a film about it um yeah so so i mean there's one i really liked i was glad to see bernie i'm glad to catch up with it even though it's you know been 10 years since it came out yeah it feel like it kind of went under the radar at the time that it came out and I, i'm yeah i'm glad i caught up with it too um so let's talk a little bit about me and orson wells from 2009 it's it's available on vod uh this is a film written by holly gent and uh vincent palmo jr uh directed by richard linkletter set in 1937 in new york it's a story of a teenager richard played by zach efron who finagles his way into the mercury theater in manhattan in a small role in orson wells production of julius caesar which was sort of a modern take on the Shakespeare with fascist sort of fascist echoes. Um, now he's discovers Orson played with some intensity by Christian McKay. And, and this is quite a 
brilliant portrayal. I mean, very, very much uh, reminded me of Orson Welles. Um, this character is brilliant, demanding, charismatic, uh, and kind of a bad guy. He's prone to having flagrant affairs with while his heavily pregnant wife is off somewhere in Brooklyn. Uh, Richard also gets to know Sonia, played by Claire Danes. She's an assistant at the theater with big ambitions for show business. Also on the scene are in supporting roles are, you know, well-known uh, characters like John Houseman, played by Eddie Marzan here, and Joseph Cotton, played by James Tupper. Um, this is a movie that at first to me felt like a Woody Allen movie without the jokes. It just has this period quality that some of his movies have, but 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 none of the zip. And we we spend so much time in the theater. I started as we go along. I, it gets it becomes more of what it is, which I think is is a love letter to the show business life at that time. Uh, it's something sincere and it's earnest, and I appreciated that. But the problem is, it's also a little dull. I found the stakes to be very low. Efren's character has nothing to say, and when he does say something, he doesn't sound very smart. I think he's just miscast here compared to the people around him. He just doesn't have any energy. But then lot large swaths of the film I didn't feel have much energy either. It's it's edited in a kind of sluggish way, uh, and I just didn't care much about um, about what's going on. So, so yeah, I guess maybe part of the problem is we've seen a lot of movies about Orson Welles, and then we did an episode where we watched a bunch of his movies. Right, yes. Um, so I sort of feel I've had maybe enough of the mythologizing of this guy, um, even and even in this film, which paints him in a kind of a bad light. Um, you know, it just, I, I'm, it may just be the timing. I, I feel like if maybe I'd seen it when this came out, I might have more affection for it. Yeah, it's it's based on a novel that was inspired by a photograph uh, from this production that of uh, Julius Caesar that actually happened where this. There was a, a teenager in the cast, and uh, the, the the author of the novel, um, Robert Caplow, saw the photo and just thought, oh, I bet that kid had an interesting life being, you know, young and part of this intensive creative uh, whirlwind that was Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater. And that seems like a pretty good premise. And, it, and uh, but of course, uh, he had to create, because that person was still alive, I guess he had to create a whole other character. Um, the actual actor, who was the teenager, went on to become the voice of the leprechaun in the Lucky Charm serial ads. Oddly enough, there's your, there's a, there's your weird piece of trivia for the day. Um, but, uh, it's yeah, Zac Efron is hard to buy as a teenager who has to struggle for anything. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I'm guessing maybe that his casting was predicated on whatever production deal it took to get this made because obviously it's a period piece so it's going to be pretty expensive to mount and and they were squeezing every penny and i just feel like zach efron does not seem like anybody who has to um you know it, it's like when they when paul who, who's there's a story oh, robert redford was going to be cast at, at as the graduate instead of dustin hoffman mm-hmm. and then uh you know, I think Mike Nichols asked him if uh, he'd ever been rejected by a girl, <laughs> and Robert Redford said no. Like, yeah, <laughs> right? Okay, you're not playing this part. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like this is sort of if Robert Redford had played the graduate, had played Benjamin in the graduate. I feel like that's what this is kind of like. Um, and and um, and also, there's a subplot with uh, Zoe Kazan as this kind of woman he befriends in a music shop at a sheet music store and she's an aspiring writer for the new yorker and she has like i think she shows up three times in the movie yeah and i feel like you know if she'd been a bigger part of the story that might have been more interesting but of course um richard the the kid actor pines for 
the sort of production manager of the show, played by Claire Danes, uh, you know, older, more experienced woman. And uh, and so and it just kind of threw us like, what about forget her? Go for Zoe Kazan is like, you know, right there. So uh, th- there's uh, there's some, you know, weird dangling threads throughout the film. And and the fact that, you know, Wells was not the profligate womanizer that he's painted to be here. Um you know, kind of throws things off a little bit. Like the the more you know about Wells, the, it feels a bit off. Uh, but it is great seeing that period portrayed. I think maybe Linklater wanted to present that uh, the, you know that Julius Caesar that only survives. I think maybe in a radio version plus some photographs. Kind of wanted to bring that to life. And and those scenes are great. The scenes of of actually mounting the play and the rehearsals and all that stuff. I mean, there's still there's still a lot to get out of this film from watching it. But uh, but you feel like it could have been better than it was and also oh shout out to uh, halifax's own uh james tupper who plays joseph cotton uh, in the film i didn't know he was from here yeah yeah, yeah. grew up in dartmouth his dad was a teacher at prince arthur junior high i think i think that's the history but um but uh yeah a lovely guy he usually comes home to visit every so often you might see him wandering on the streets when the weather's nice you never know and uh and and he's great at joseph cotton although cotton is portrayed also as a uh serial womanizer which is interesting which made me wonder how much of that was the truth as well hi i'm Lindsay cameron wilson host of the food podcast but you know what it's not just about food it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook. I'm Karsten Knox. And we're looking at the films of Richard Linklater and... uh, Link later, link letter, link later. Later, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of flow I go, between them. I do too. I do too. It's, it's all right. It's better to be talked about than not be talked about. So, whether or not they pronounce your name correctly or not, and uh, yeah, we we uh, we're we're tying all of these uh, films from the various corners of his filmography to his uh, recent Apollo Ten and a Half, a Space Age Childhood, which is on Netflix and uh, is highly recommended by both of us. His his third feature that is done in the videoed and rotoscoped uh kind of style and certainly a a love letter to growing up uh, in the early 70s during the time of the uh, apollo moon landings uh this is another nostalgic ode to uh maybe not childhood or childhood becoming adulthood uh, as it were and it's uh, everybody wants some from 2016 uh, written and directed by richard linklater he he's kind of posited that it's a spiritual sequel of sorts to both uh, Dazed and Confused, his high, cool, high school chronicle, and also um, in a certain way to Boyhood. Uh, and it's it's basically a, kind of a, a college romp, as it were, a kind of look at the, the kind of the Labor Day weekend before uh, the school year begins at a, a university, I think the Southern Texas University, or University of Southern Texas, I forget the actual acronym, um, in the, uh, the sort of 1980, the, the fall of 1980, when when you know, there was a pretty radical cultural shift happening at that time. And, and we've got uh, a bunch of young baseball players who are all kind of shacked up together in a, in a house uh, on, on campus. And it, the, the film takes place over the course of the Labor Day weekend as we move into that first school year. And uh, through the eyes of a young, um, a young ball player, a freshman ball player, 
played by Blake Jenner. He plays Jake, who's uh, coming into this uh, world as a kind of a hotshot pitcher. And uh, first of all, finds out that a lot of guys don't like pitchers for some reason. <laughs> And, uh, because they're they're kind of loners, they 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 feel there's a a kind of uh, egotism that happens out on the mound where pitchers think you know they're raised up those those couple of feet on the pitcher's mound and they think they're above everybody else on the team. Perhaps I'm not sure what it is. I don't know a lot about inside baseball culture, but uh, this film gives us a lot of it as um, this mix of, of of freshman ball players and and sort of more senior students and athletes kind of explore this cultural world of the campus over the course of this weekend. And we get to see all the different um, bodies of students uh, as they kind of intermingle over the course of three days. Yeah, this is a film where when I first saw it, of course, I was excited to see a new Linkletter film. uh, And, you know, I I got into it. The soundtrack was really interesting, really awesome tunes. I love the sort of the feeling of authenticity authenticity again with these characters and this place. But uh, I really struggled at the start of the movie, uh, you know, it's it's not only is Linkletter delving into the sort of pool of nostalgia for his college days, but it also feels like he has some affection for movies like Porky's and Last American Virgin, <laughs> yeah. the kind of loutish sex comedies of the 1980s. And then he has these like this focus on a bunch of jerk jocks and their competitiveness. It's like he remade Animal House, but the heroes are, are the guys from Omega House. And I was like, what is he thinking? I don't like any of these people. But the strangest thing happens is he does make you like these guys. Not all of them, but enough that you start to care about them. You start to see past their bluster and their boneheaded bonding rituals into this kind of sort of random philosophizing, which is a hallmark of Linkletter's work. He gets he gets to some kind of truth about how young men behave together, and some of them actually have a little self-awareness, which winds up being endearing. Jake, he's a realist. He recognizes that he's no longer special, having landed amongst a bunch of other guys, all of whom were uh, amongst the best players on their high school teams. And then there's the amusing Finn, played by Glenn Powell, a fellow who has a theory about uh, every subject under the sun. And the final reel, we finally get to know a, a woman in the cast a little better, Beverly, played by Zoe Deutsch, who happens to be actually the daughter of Leah Thompson. Um, and that allows Linkletter to practice a little bit of his patented before series walk and talk romance. Uh, yeah, they feel like real people. And uh, a startling amount of insight plumbed into characters who, on the verge of adulthood, navigate the possibilities of identity and a future of limitless potential. Um, I, I thought in places the bit of a slog. I think it misses some of the dazed and confused uh, the characters that have real anxiety about the world, you know, in a word, it's missing nerds. Um, <laughs> and Linkletter gives a lot of credit to, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for humanizing a bunch of meatheads, but I still miss the nerds, which may reflect on my own youthful identity more than I care to admit. <laughs> yeah, th- yeah, maybe this film has just a few too many alpha males in it for, for it to be completely successful. But but uh, I, I did enjoy the peek into this milieu. Certainly, uh it gets the music right because, you know, I do remember hearing Cheap Trick blasting out of every conceivable car radio. And, uh-huh. and uh, but also, you know, those folks who would explore records by Devo and, although they weren't necessarily the baseball players, but, um, you know, and, and Gary Newman's Cars uh, shows up when they're playing cards at some point. And, uh, and uh, oddly enough, the, I think it's the Van Halen song that the title yeah. comes from. I don't think we hear that. Over the course of the film, but mm. they used it in the trailer, of course. Right, of course they did. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, so that that feels very right uh, in terms of the, you know, it, it opens with uh, with Jake driving down the highway, blasting my Sharona, and it's like, okay, yep, 
Mm-hmm. Been there. Yep. Uh, I mean, I couldn't drive in 1980, but I certainly was. I had a 45 of my Sharona that I played very loud at every given opportunity. So, uh, you know, they, you know, I don't know how they decide which songs are the ones, but, you know, these are clearly the songs that I remember. And, oh, and Rapper's Delight. Okay, here's the weird thing. I had a discussion about Rapper's Delight about two days before I watched this and how every kid in my class in grade seven had it memorized. And then two days later, there's a scene and they're all in the car listening to Rapper's Delight and they all know it off by heart. And, uh, you know, that nearly made my brain explode. Yeah, yeah, wow. (laughs) Um, You know, one of the things I really like about Linkletter is how well he does youth and you know uh and and he really gets that he's always there's a boyishness to him as a as a person i mean when he's interviewed it's hard to imagine that the guy must be pushing 60 now um because he's just so boyish and so youthful and all his films are really like that his films really celebrate youth a lot of his best films do uh with the exception of this next one we're going to talk about last flag flying which is really about age um and uh it's a, a few heavy themes about aging about Personal's res- person's res- obligation to their country, their identity in the face of patriotism, of age and infirmity, and even what happens after we die. And is there ever a reward for our sacrifices? Or is sharing a good laugh with friends the best we've got to look forward to? Uh, you know, it dips a little bit into sentiment, but uh, Linkletter's gift for nuanced storytelling, you know, wins the day. And it's a, it's a if the dynamic between the three leads feels familiar, it's because... Uh, the the author of the book this is based on Daniel uh, Ponixan, uh he also wrote the last detail which is was adapted by Robert Town for Hal Ashby's 1973 movie where Jack Nicholson and Otis Young show Randy Quaid a good time before he has to go to jail this film finds a version of those three characters meeting up 30 years later Brian Cranston is Sal a loudmouth alcoholic extrovert Lawrence Fishburne is Richard the soldier who left war behind become to become a man of God and Steve Carell is Larry Doc Shepard, an introvert who was just a kid when these guys were all in Vietnam. And they're all back together because Doc's son, who signed up after 9-11, died in Iraq. And the circumstances of his death are one element of this sort of circuitous plot uh, as they take the body from, Ar- from Arlington to his most more familiar surroundings in New Hampshire. Uh, it's a, kind of a light road picture with serious conversations populated in diners and bars and bus stations. Uh, and uh, it's also deliciously vulgar. So in that regard, very much like The Last Detail, a lot of dad humor, casual camaraderie, and even the unfortunate bigotry. It all feels honest and true to these characters. I, I like the film. I thought it was was a little bit of another another divergence in in Linkletter's uh, a filmography, but but a but a strong one. Yeah, we really get a feel for the lives that these guys lead now, and and. You know, not so much a sense of what they've been through because we've seen enough of that in other films and other stories. But but you know where they're at all these years later after they've had their injuries and and watched their friends get killed and so on, and they put all that kind of in the past and they put their friendships in the past. So it's you know the the joy in this film is watching these three pretty terrific actors uh, kind of rekindle the, the friendships that they thought they'd left uh, in in the rearview mirror and uh, and and seeing them bounce off each other and seeing their kind of their old personalities reemerge as it were. Um, you know, once, once they get kind of comfortable being together again, um, Brian Cranston threatens to push it into kind of a, an over the top, I mean, he's an over to the top character. Uh, and, uh, but he always seems to be able to reel it back in, uh, 
before it, it gets to that point. And, you know, and he's, his character, you know, the other two actors have to really fight for, for their, you know, to hold their space on screen against, uh, against Sal, who's a very much an in your face and b- bigger than life personality. But I, th- I thought they kind of did well doing that, especially uh, Steve Carell who has to play a very quiet, very reserved uh, person. And uh, to, to be able to counteract uh, that against um, Larry Fishburne and Brian Cranston is, is no mean feat for sure. Yeah, they're great. I think that's what I like the most. The joy is between is, is between the characters, between these these actors who convince as middle aged dudes with a shared military history and a fair amount of regrets who have made different choices with their lives and taken them to different places. I like Cranston. I can imagine Nicholson coming back to this role 15 years ago, but credit to Cranston for making it his own. And, and uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's not a perfect film, but it's one that I was glad to see. And of course, uh, you know, most, even the ones I'm pretty critical of, of, of Linkletter, I'm always glad to see them because there's always got something that's interesting about them. Um, I know we've only got a few minutes left, and we did want to mention the Before Trilogy, which yeah, is, yeah, it's my favorite. It's my achievement. Yeah. I think so. I think so. It's my favorite of his films. Before Sunrise from 1995. Nine years later, he made Before Sunset in 2004, and nine years after that, Before Midnight in 2013, and they're all available on streaming services. Uh, and uh, it's it's I think cinema's most unlikely and delightful. Uh, series, uh, you know, apparently they're the 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 least what are they said the least box office for a um a a, a trilogy, uh, which I think they have some pride about, and it's it's it started as a story of of two twenty somethings who meet on a train outside Vienna and they spend the night together walking and talking. It's it's they're both self involved and heady, but there's a sense of adventure, of humor, and love of life, and you get this gorgeous travelogue of of Vienna. Uh, and an optimist view of young love. And uh, Ethan Hawke and um, Julie Delpy are wonderful in the parts. And then we see them again nine years later in real time and cinematic time in Paris in Before Sunset. Of the three movies, that's still my favorite. Uh, I love to see how they've changed over those years and how they've reconnected. And it has maybe one of the finest endings of any film Ever, just so perfectly ambiguous, um, while not being ambiguous at all, and uh, it's perfectly pitched. So that's before sunset from 2004, and then they reconnected in 2013 for before midnight, which is a lot more heavy. Uh, the couple is together, but they're dealing with problems in their relationship. It's set in Greece. Um, there's a lot of sort of subterranean dissatisfaction in the relationship. Uh, and they talk about it. I mean, these are very talky movies, but I really feel like they work because the characters are so connected and they feel so believable. And I love how the films examine how they've changed over time. Um, and I have done the math. It's 2022. If they're <laughs> going to make a fourth one, it should come out this year, but I don't think they are, which is too bad. But I still love these three films, and I can't talk. We can't talk about Richard Linkletter without <laughs> talking about the Before series. Well, I've only seen each of them one time each, and it's been a few years since uh, I wrapped up uh, my viewing of the trilogy. So I, I did think they were wonderful films and, and a great way to see how humans really interact it just felt so true to life and uh, at some point i will revisit them again and and experience it all over yeah i am 100 percent with you i'll watch them i'll probably keep watching these movies they're the ones i go back to the most and there's a lovely criterion collection a box set of of the three films that you can you can find out there if, if you're so inclined and i i think everyone should be <laughs> And that wraps up our look at the films of Richard Linklater. 
thank you for joining us. I hope you uh, find some films that you're interested in checking out. They're all out there on various streaming services and platforms uh, or in physical media, if you so desire. A lot to love in this filmography, a lot of things to discover, and even the films that we didn't necessarily think were top shelf link later still had a lot to offer so there's a lot of stuff to enjoy my name is Stephen cook and you can find me online on twitter at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e uh, my name is karsten knox i am also on twitter uh my handle on there is uh, from my blog flaw in the iris and of course thanks as always to the folks at ckdu who allow us the use of the studio and air us every other tuesday at 5 p.m and the village soundcast network who dress up the show all pretty and put it up on your favorite podcast platforms thanks and we'll see you next time lens me your ears is hosted by stephen cook and karsten knox and is produced in halifax nova scotia at village sound for the village soundcast network all music courtesy of gypsophilia send feedback to lens me your ears podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you thanks for listening This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.